from our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. All right, welcome to It's All Political. We're here with Delane Easton, former superintendent of public schools and a candidate for governor. We're, we're in the uh, a cafe in Oakland right now. <laughs> all political on the road great to be with you joe so as a candidate you are a perfect eight and zero in your in your career eight wins no losses never lost a race you start the uh, union city council union city city council you won three terms in the assembly four terms in the assembly won twice for the superintendent of public schools and uh, on this on the stump of senior you light up a room uh, you're the only candidate, I believe, to have a school named after you, Delaney Easton Elementary in uh, Union City. But so far, you've been kind of struggling in the polls to raise money. What is, what's your challenge been so far? Well, I have been off the stage for a while, and so a lot of people have either not heard of me or they've forgotten me. So, But we are getting some real traction. And, in fact, uh, we've moved up. We've tied John Chung in the last poll that we saw. And, you know, so once people hear me, I have a chance to win them over because, in fact, I have something to say. And uh, actually, if you add all the primaries, I've won 14 elections. So, and I was expected to lose several of them. So, uh, you know, never, never say die is my attitude. And uh, so we had our first debate the other night with all, well, not all seven candidates. We had six of the seven candidates. And uh, by my count, you were the only candidate not to personally criticize another candidate. Um, and... Uh, you know, most most people, when they're down the polls, they swing light wildly. You said you were an optimist. Now, how does a progressive Democrat in the age of Trump be an optimist? Well, optimism is a political act. You know, there used to be, I, I used to say I'm very hopeful, I'm full of hope. But hope is something you do with your fingers crossed. I realize that optimism is that kid running to the basketball hoop and, and throwing it in, that kid that's practicing at the piano and dreaming of being a concert pianist. It's that kid at the computer lab who's trying again and again to master the, the work that they're doing. And, and that's really an act of optimism. Otherwise, you give up. What's the point? If you're a pessimist, you know, then you just shrivel up in the corner. But I really believe that optimism is a political act and that we need more optimists, especially in the age of Trump. We need people that look at these kids and see the future. Look at these kids and dream of them as scientists and, and artists and mathematicians and composers. And, and that's really what we have to have here. And I want to just point out that actually it was a bunch of people who'd been through the most depressing experiences in the recorded history of the world, a Great Depression and a terrible world war, who came out with such optimism and did for my generation. I want that to prevail in California again and for us to do it for the next generation and the one after that. And uh, I want to talk to you about being the only woman in the race. And uh, you are obviously highly qualified. You, uh, you've held local office, statewide office in the assembly. Um, and this year there's a record number of women running for office. It would seem like in a super blue, woke state like California, which has never had a female governor, correct? Um, this would be a prime moment for a female candidate in sort of this Me Too era. Why, why do you think that hasn't happened? Why, you it's hardest in the largest states for women to prevail. So if you stop and think, Texas had a woman governor for one term four years, Ann Richards. 
no, no New York woman governor, no Florida woman governor, no Illinois woman governor, no California woman governor. And when I was elected superintendent of public instruction, I was only the fourth woman in the history of California to be a constitutional officer, and we elect eight every four years. We are now up to a total of eight in history. We have only one at present. And so when you do the math, look at the big cities in California. Only one out of 10 has a woman mayor. We're sitting in that city right now in Oakland. And so it's harder when the cities are bigger. It's harder when the counties are bigger. It's harder when the states are bigger. Is it a matter of fundraising? We have, you know, obviously running against Newsom, who has been <laughs> essentially running for the job for seven or eight years now. Uh, Antonio Villaraigosa has been running or planning various uh, fundraising things for a couple of years. Is it is it a fundraising thing or what is it about? Well, it is fundraising in part, but money is necessary. It's not sufficient. So we need to have enough money, but we don't need to have the most money. We just need to have enough to be heard. And if I can be heard, I can win this race. I've been before many groups where people have come up to me and said, who are you? Or, I remember you, and you have my vote. I'm so glad you're back on the stage. Um, I, want, I want to hear more about your era of uh, as being a sort of pioneering woman in, in, in politics in California. And, um, and I looked at some, an old Chronicle clip. This is from 2001. Jerry Roberts, you know Jerry Roberts, he wrote the story about uh, your transformation from, quote, shy schoolgirl to outspoken overachiever came when you won the part of the femme fatale in a junior high school play. Um, you said in, in the 1960s you suffered from, you say you suffered from low self-esteem, so your drama teacher insisted that you try out for the part of Lorraine Sheldon. Do you remember this? In the, in the madcap comedy, The Man Who Came to Dinner, this is your quote from then. I was a sh horribly shy kid who used to say, uh, quote, I'm an ingrown toenail disguised as a child. Um, but your drama teacher helped you to overcome it. Tell, tell us about it. Well, it was high school, actually. But uh, my drama There's a fact aired by Jerry Roberts. We'll, we'll call him out on this. All right. <laughs> it was high school, and my drama teacher was an amazing man named Jay Deck. And another kind of nerdy girl and I did a scene from The Man Who Came to Dinner. And two boys in the class did the scene did another scene from the same play. And the next day, Mr. Deck was casting the play, and I was not in his class. But he sought me out in the hall at my high school, Claremont High School, Belmont, California, and he said, Miss Easton, why haven't you tried out for the part of Lorraine Sheldon and the man who came to dinner? You got an A-plus in my class. You're perfect for the part. And I said, well, I'd love to, Mr. Deck, but I'm afraid I'd faint at the auditions. I'm too shy. And he said, well, suit yourself, Miss Easton, but this is a metaphor for your whole life. If you never try out, you'll never get the part. And so I tried out because of him, and I got the part. And all of a sudden, I found my voice. And I was, I was actually voted wittiest in my senior class. And uh, I just came out of my shell. But it was, it was that play. And I always say to people, you know, the Greeks actually invented the word democracy from two Greek words, demos and kratos. They also invented the word idiot. And it meant one who does not participate in politics. But the Greeks also believed that the act of participation, whether it was political, athletic, a music ensemble, or a drama ensemble, changed the individual. Working together with other people made you better and stronger. And I absolutely, when I read that in college, I thought, well, yeah. And it's true for me. A light went on when you were in high school. You were a shy kid until then. Yeah, a light went on when I was in high school, and I got the chance to, uh, to find my own voice. And I was thereafter, I was more likely to 
you know, be able to speak in public. I found my way. I eventually was a college teacher, and that helped me find my voice, you know. I was teaching at community college. The first year I taught, I was one of the youngest people in the class. So, you know, because a lot of kids, a lot of men had come back from Vietnam, and there were some older women that were reentering community college. So, you know, but I had courage by then. And uh, I really believe that Mr. Deck and the opportunity to perform were life-changing for me. And I, I say that to all kids. That's why Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts and Explorer Scouts and, and uh, you know, uh, future farmers of them, everything that gets a kid engaged doing something else is really important. And you also, uh, I thought something else that intrigued me about your life when I was researching was, um, you know, and you talk about this in your stump, you often quote your dad, who was a working class guy, retired military, he was a machinist. Um, so when you went to go to school, you went to UC Davis, and you wanted to get a loan. Tell, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but this is what I understand. Uh, only men could get loans when you're 18 years old, but women could not. Yeah, yeah, explain that. Women could not get a loan until they were 21. That's the way they wrote the College Student Loan Act. This, I got graduated high school in 1965. So um, men could borrow at 18. Girls had to be 21. And that's sort of the way they've said it, men and girls. But at the reality was that I wanted to go to college, and my parents, my dad had been on strike that year, so they'd used up what little savings they'd had because he was on strike for like two months. And so they, my mother went and talked to the bank manager, and he said, well, you'd have to borrow the money, a three-year loan for 7.5% interest. And my mother thought that that would, was just too much because by the time I was 21, they would be paying twice their house payment. So I went into my father, and I said in a mature voice, Daddy Sugar says I can't go to Davis and my father went into my mother and said Dottie what's this about Delane going not going to Davis she said well I talked to the branch manager you know she was a boy she could go but as a girl we'd have to borrow the money at a higher rate of interest and pay it back and uh, my father said well we have to find a way and my mother said well what do you suggest we do take a second mortgage on the house my father thought for a minute and he said we'll sell the damned house if we have to she's going to Davis he had been accepted at college during the depression and he didn't go. He joined the Navy instead because his family was bankrupt and they'd lo the farmhouse had burned down. So he went to the Navy and sent money home to keep his brother in school. But in the end, you know, he was there for me. And she was too. She, she got, you know, they got, did it together. And, and in fact, I could have borrowed the money when I was 20 because the law changed. But they went ahead and borrowed it until I was 21. And then I could take out a College Student Loan Act which was 4%, and I didn't have to pay it back till nine months after I graduated, and I had 10 years to pay it back. How did that experience shape you, just the, seeing a very stark difference between men and women? Or, I'm sorry, men and girls. <laughs> yeah, men, men and women. Well, my mother was a feminist, and she did believe in the equal rights for women. So it w was, my brother joined the Navy to get GI Bill money to go to college. So it wasn't like she was discriminating against me. She had always said it was more important for a woman to have a uh, education than a man because a man can always support himself, but a woman can only support herself if she has a college education. At that time, women made 54 cents on the dollar what men made. We're now up to 80 cents on the dollar. We're still not at equity. But the reality is that I believe that the experience of going to Davis was just life-changing because I was in a room with, we were in a suite, so I had four roommates, and they were all, had at least one parent that was college educated. I had neither parent had gone to college. On the other hand, I was the only one that passed subject A. 
because when my dad got out of the Navy, they could have bought a bigger house for less money, but they bought the little house that cost more to be in a better school district. And so I got to go to school in San Carlos, California. I w and when I got sworn in as superintendent of schools for the state, first woman, I was sworn in at Britton Acres Elementary School in San Carlos, California, because I wanted to make the statement that that place had changed my life. Because I went from a classroom in San Francisco of 44 kids to being the 20th kid at Britton Acres. Remember me, class size reduction in K3? Yes, I was about to say, that, that's one of, your, one of your signature issues as a superintendent of schools. Exactly, and it's because I really had a good teacher in San Francisco, but she had 44 second graders. And I get to San Carlos, and I'm the 20th kid, and they said, if we get any more second graders, we're gonna have to open another second grade. 20 is our maximum. That was a, it was a different era. Um, the other thing I thought was interesting sort of uh, talks about sort of that goes to the point of being a, a female candidate and, w and, and how you were shaped was um, when you were in the, um, and I, this, this still blows me away, when you were in the um, legislature in 1989, that was the first year that a, um, a woman, Senator Rebecca Morgan, be <laughs> became the first female state senator to wear pants on the, and you participated in a, some sort of protest about this, correct? Yes. Not, not of that, but in favor of that. We could wear pants in the assembly, but in the Senate, they still had a rule that women couldn't wear pants. So there are a bunch of guys on the floor in Levi's. They're wearing ties and jackets, but they're in Levi's. Becky Morgan comes on the floor in an Armani pantsuit, probably cost more than three or four of the suits put together the men were wearing. She comes on the floor in an Armani pantsuit and she's escorted off by the sergeant at arms. And so we held a press conference. At that, the uh, first time I was elected, there were only 16 women. We were up to 19 women out of 120 in the legislature. We had a press conference. 18 of us wore pants, only Kathy Wright wore a dress, but she said, I'm here to defend the right of uh, women to wear pants. I just don't wear them. Anyway, we had this press conference and Willie Brown called us the Lipstick Caucus. And all you know what broke loose. And uh, how did that go over when you were called the Lipstick Caucus? Everybody was furious. Republicans and Democrats were with us, and we were all together, and Willie apologized, and they changed the rule in the Senate to allow women to wear pantsuits. We made the point that men could wear kilts. Why couldn't women wear pantsuits? Absolutely. Absolutely. It seems like something from the 1930s, and this is 1989, which is not that long ago. The, all these things, do, do you think that some younger voters, especially younger women who grew up thinking this, this, this stories might be, they, can't, they couldn't even believe it. I couldn't even believe it. Um, do you think they have a hard time believing these things at this point? Is that, is that, is that, would they be have a hard time connecting with these stories? I think they're surprised sometimes, but I'm not sure they have a hard time believing it. It's like an aha moment where they go, oh, wow, really? Was that true? And so when I first got involved, I was a political science teacher at community colleges. I was involved, founding member of the National Women's Political Caucus in Southern Alameda County. You, people don't realize there were almost no women elected anywhere. The first city of over 100,000 to have a woman as mayor was San Jose, California, and the whole country, Janet Gray Hayes. And that was in the, I think it was late 60s, early 70s, somewhere in there. And then the first board of supervisors to have a majority of women was Santa Clara County. They called it the feminist capital of America. But there were really all over the state, there were very few, you know, Diane Feinstein ran for mayor three times and was defeated. She became mayor because of the assassination of George Moscone. 
So it was harder for women, still is harder for women, but it's not as bad as it was. And I think we have, because we've had these rock star women that have gone on to higher office, a lot of people are looking around and saying, huh, you know. Now I've had people say to me, you know, you're, you're pretty smart for a girl. Or, uh, you know, we had a wonderful uh, occasion, my first term in the legislature, Jackie and I were the two women Democrats elected that year, only two. So the whole legislature was up to 16 women. And uh, one of the Republican women said, the only place where you're treated worse than the Democratic caucus, I'll bet, is the Republican caucus. Because anyway, we all suffered. But one day we were in the caucus and I made a recommendation and they just glossed over it. About 10 minutes later, one of the men made the same recommendation. Everybody went, wow. And Jackie, to her great credit, stood up and said, wait a cotton picking minute. That was Delane's recommendation 10 minutes ago and you just glossed over it. Oh, I don't think it was the same recommendation. Well, he said, did she turn to me, was it? And I said, yes, it was, exactly. And, you know, people were kind of apologetic. But I think we have come a ways. Don't get me wrong, but we aren't where we need to be. You know, the old line, we ain't where we want to be, we ain't where we ought to be, we ain't where we're going to be, but thank God we ain't where we was. <laughs> I don't think I could say that. <laughs> I don't think I could say that twice in a row. Um, do, so when you saw all the, the stuff that was happening in Sacramento or couple in the last of the last few months, did that resonate with what your experience was there? Did you have your Me Too moment? What was your Me Too moment in uh, when you were in the legislature or, in, or in, as the superintendent of public schools? Well, I will say I think I've had experience where men have made passes at me in the private sector and in the public sector. I think the legislators are treated a little more respectfully than the female staff are. I think what, sh what appalls me is that they use public money not only to buy these harassed victims off, but to buy their silence to protect the harassers. The harassers should have used their own money, thank you very much, to pay people for the damage they did, not the taxpayers' money, and it should not have been a code of silence. It should have been sung from the rooftops. And I think it's time we say, as people in this state, we are not going to allow uh, people of either gender, but anybody, but especially men, to pick on, and especially young women. You know, you heard the story of the of the legislator who was going calling his intern to his apartment and showing up in a, in a towel at the front door and dropping the towel. That's disgraceful. It's not even, you know, in the realm of of something that you shouldn't be just absolutely ashamed of. And we have to change the culture fundamentally in the public sector and in the private sector, in the nonprofit sector, everywhere. Were stories like that around when you were in Sacramento, and was there a different attitude, kind of, was it more of a boys will be boys type of thing then? You know, I think the women, as I say, the women legislators were a little more protected. Usually if a man made a pass at you, they did it respectfully, because you had the power they had. You're not their subordinate. You're not someone trying to hang on to your job. So, you know, I, I, I had more respectful passes made at me. And, you know, but you say to people, I'm a happily married woman, and they go, so am I. What does that have to do with anything? Seriously. So it, it is a problem, and, and everybody needs to understand self-control is something that you should have if you're going to serve in public life. It's also something you should have, though, if you're going to be the director of a play or you're going to run a company or you're going to you know, be a professor or you're going to be a, a, a leader in any capacity. And for too long, we've been winking at these things. And it's time for people to say, wait a cotton picking minute. You know, when I was a child, my dad read us the Emperor's New Clothes, and I thought it was a really dumb story. It's only as an adult 
that I appreciate the fact that some people wouldn't realize that something really evil is evil. And what did you take away from um, the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign, where sometimes it seemed that she was struggling between saying, We're, we've got 17 million cracks in the glass ceiling, and, and other times she's saying, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not running... Not run, not running as a woman, because of course everyone is. But you know, trying to de-emphasize the the gender difference. Did you learn anything from that, or? I don't know. I have great respect for Hillary. I think every person in public life has to kind of you know go their own way. You have to be true to yourself, to thine own self. Be true, and thou thou canst not be false to any man. Is the quote, but it's any man or woman. And I think Hillary tried to balance you know, her role as a woman with her role as a leader without making, you know, uh, necessarily some of the waves that I think she could have made. I mean, if it walks like a duck and it flies like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And I'm a woman, and I'm running as a woman. But I hope that means that I bring uh, empathy, compassion, intelligence, and ethics to my job. And I think you have to, you know, uh, sort of acknowledge you're a person, yes, but you're also uh, an, uh, in a unique situation, as many African Americans have had to do, as some Asian Americans and Latinos have had to do. We have got to understand that we have to, you know, break the glass ceiling, and it, each person has to do it themselves in the context in which they're operating. So when you, uh, when you right before you left uh, public office, you said you've been, you're really just, you said, quote, as you told the Chronicle. Uh, my friends, Matir and Ross, uh, I'm just I'm just really quite disgusted with campaigning. These days, it's all about raising millions for 30-second commercials. And you had just come off a, a campaign where you had to raise you know, $3 million. Someone came at you with a million dollars. Um, and you'd been approached about running for Congress or this Board of Equalization. You said, no, it's time to get out of the thicket. I love the public policy part, but the campaigning just chills my blood all for raising 30-second commercials that don't even begin to address the issues. What brought you back after all that? I mean, it had been, you know, a decade or so. But what yeah. brought you back? It was watching from the sidelines as we disinvested in some of the things I care the most about. Obviously, education. I had moved us from 47th to 27th in per-pupil spending, but they were getting, they reduced, they changed class size to 24 to 1 in some schools. Some don't even have it anymore. They have disinvested, you know, they, the bill got vetoed to do mandatory kindergarten. They took a fortune out of child development. The money's never been restored. Higher education is increasingly out of hand. I have a young friend who I mentor who has $248,000 worth of debt. She went to a community college, UC Berkeley and, and UCLA Law School, $248,000. So it's education I'm worried about, but it's also housing. Look at the number of homeless. Have you ever seen this many homeless in your life? And there are women and children on the street, and that's evil. That's sinful. The children in particular should not be on the streets. So we need somebody who's going to do a full court press to build affordable housing. And while I applaud the legislature for building 14,000 units, that's a fraction of what we need to do every year. I look at the uh, situation with health care, and you know, we all know people that are, are living on the margins and live in terror of getting really sick because they either don't have health care or they have sketchy health care and they're paying a fortune for it. And I certainly look at this environment and I say, you know, why don't we ban fracking? We had earthquakes before they were fashionable. Why in the world would California have earthquakes, dangers out of fracking? 
And oh, by the way, look what it does to our groundwater. So, and then I, I, when I first got to the legislature, you know, I'd been a corporate planner for one of the biggest companies in America. So I got to the legislature and I asked to see the long range plans. And most people look at me like I had rocks in my head. I said, no, no, we had a general plan at the city. The county has a general plan, the state makes them. Where is our planning? Finally, I get to water committee and the consultant says, well, we have a water plan. It was done under Governor Brown, Pat Brown, 1957. The higher ed master plan dates to 1960. So one of the things that frustrates me is the lack of planning in Sacramento. You know, because we weren't planning, we have a half a billion dollar repair at Oroville. Because we didn't have a plan, we let the record rainfall last year run off into the ocean. So we need to be doing planning for water, for transportation and infrastructure, we need for housing, we need to absolutely do planning. And, and the housing situation, you know Habitat for Humanity spends $80,000 per unit to build in California? that goes in fees to the state and local government? That's the only state in the union where they spend that kind of money. So California needs to realize that we've got some work to do here. And you know, uh, rather than get rid of the California Environmental Quality Act, we need to modernize it. And we, we need to bring back rent control too. We need to get rid of Costa Hawkins. It didn't work, it turns out. And so you need somebody who's gonna say the emperor has no clothes on. It's time for California to do planning, to do you know, implementation and to really hit the ground as the generations did before us. And you, uh, you mentioned a couple of things there where you disagree with Governor Brown on. You know, he gets a lot of love, especially from Democrats, uh, public polls show he's, he's a decent uh, approval rating. But where do you differ from him? Uh, what would you do differently than where the, the route that Governor Brown has charted? You, you mentioned a couple of things there. But well, I have great respect for Jerry Brown, and I give him my, uh, the full credit for getting California out of the worst financial disaster we'd seen since the Great Depression. Having said that, he has not restored the money to child development that Arnold Schwarzenegger pulled out. It was only 3% of the state budget, but Arnold took 20% of the cuts, and Jerry's been deferring paying all the money back. Well, what do we say to the four-year-old? Would you please defer growing up? You know, and, and Jerry did vetoed the bill to do mandatory kindergarten. I thought that was dead wrong, and every other you know, educational uh, genius that I know, let alone just, just the regular people. Everybody gets that the steepest curve of learning is zero to five. We should be investing in child development and preschool and in kindergarten. And then we ought to be investing more in K-12 to have the most expensive state in the union be 41st in per pupil spending is really like being last. And by the way, we have the most poor children, the highest percentage and number of poor children of any state in the union. Those children need extra scaffolding, not less. And then since 1985, we built one UC campus, three CSUs, and nine community colleges. Do the math, that's 13 campuses. In that same period of time, we built 23 prisons. So we're 41 in per pupil spending and number one in per prisoner. That's wrong. That's what I want to change. Budgets are statements of values. We got our values wrong right now. So that's a lot of investing. Where does that money come from? Well, it comes from a variety of places. First. If you do what I'm talking about, you're gonna put a lot of people to work and they're gonna make a lot of good wages and they're gonna pay a lot of taxes because they're working at good jobs. Second, we are gonna have to have a conversation about the commercial and industrial side of Prop 13. The, the property taxes for residences are actually higher now than they were when Prop 13 passed as a percentage of the total pie because you know we don't reassess Disney. We don't reassess Chevron, Valero. They're all back where they were in the 70s. How about the residential part? 
what would you do about folks? I'm, I'm thinking about my neighbors across the street who've been in their home for many years, the retired school teachers. What about them? Well, they're retired school teachers. We ought to protect them, you know. <laughs> when the house sells, it'll be reassessed. But the house is likely to sell much more rapidly than most most commercial industrial properties do. And in fact, the, there are two other downsides since we're sitting in Oakland. One of them is the Oakland fire. That fire was because the owner didn't want to be reassessed. So he didn't do anything about the outside of the building. He just converted the inside to apartments. You're talking about the ghost ship fire. Okay. Ghost ship fire. is 23 dead people because this guy was trying to keep his property taxes low, but he wanted his income to go up. And the other ba- downside is if you were trying to open a restaurant here in Oakland, across the street from somebody who'd been in business 35 years, you built a new building and you're going to do your restaurant, your taxes could be 20 times what your competitor is. That isn't fair. And so there ought to be either a raise in the percentage that commercial industrial pay from 1% to 1.5%, and then a reappraisal every 10 years. That's the easiest way to do it for assessors. The assessor down in Santa Clara says, well, if you just do when 50% plus one of the stock turns over, it's going to be very labor-intensive for assessors' offices. But there's a way to do this, and it would still be fair. The property taxes would still be below what they are in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, and Massachusetts for most of the commercial properties in the state. You also um, are pro SB 562, which would establish a single payer uh, healthcare system in in California. Um, depending on whose figure you're looking at, we're talking 330 billion to 400 billion. How would you pay for that? Well, first, there's a lot of money in, on the table right now. We already are paying. You're already spending. We're already spending some of this money. Certainly, the retired employees are part of the solution. They're already getting money. The current public employees, they're already getting paid. The uh, Medicare and Medicaid. Now, we don't know whether we're going to be able to use Medicare because the unhinged guy in the capital in in the nation's capital. We would would have to get waivers, too. We'd have to get waivers. But uh, when you look at a nation like Canada, Canada has fewer people than California. They're spending a lot less money on health care, but they have single payer. And so there are savings along the way that nobody wants to talk about. And the, the, I was at the Capitol years ago when the d- doctor came in and he said, you know, I had a terrible weekend because I was in the emergency room. And this seven-year-old boy came in. He was unconscious. His fever was 107 degrees. The parents carried him in and they were crying. And we took him into the emergency room and we worked all night and we saved his life. But he went deaf in that ear. And the cost of the taxpayers was over $50,000. All of that would have been avoided if he'd gotten $4 worth of antibiotics. So we're spending a lot on much more serious illnesses because we didn't do the, you know, preventative care. Uh, the other thing I would say is that health care should be a right and not a privilege. And right now we also have the pharmaceutical industry. Look at this EpiPen thing where they, they're, you know, they're just hosing people right and left. So we need to do some, some cost controls. One of the ways to do that is do single payer. It's not like we're spending less. We're spending more than Canada and getting less. Um, the, just today we learned that uh, the Delta Tunnels project, uh, $17 billion project to, that uh, Governor Brown wants to build to transfer water from the Delta across the state, may now be a single tunnel. Did you, uh, did you hear this? This has uh, been moving. Where are you on the Delta Tunnels? I am absolutely opposed to the Delta Tunnel. One, one and two. One or two. One or two. <laughs> Just as I was opposed to the peripheral canal all those years ago, and the voters voted it down like 70%. This is a peripheral canal with a lid on it. That's what the tunnels are. And if you look at what the governor's proposing, he could have saved 
much more water than he's proposing to deliver to Southern California if he had had a plan to capture that water in the massive rain of last year. And even this year, they're still not capturing most of the water, it's running into the ocean. So there are far better things we could do than say, oh, look, a pony, you know, this is big fancy tunnel, let's do it. You know, he wanted to build a peripheral canal 40 years ago and he got turned down and he's, uh, he's like never gives up. But this is, the, the tunnel is, is a peripheral canal with a lid on it. I, I may steal that line. Um, and, and what about high-speed rail? Um, at this point, we just, the, the, you know, Chung and the governor are talking about trying to get private investment to pay for it. How do you pay for the, for the, for the high-speed rail now? Or is this, should, we just, should we just call it a day and, 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 uh, and, and forget it? Well, everybody who's been to Japan or to China or to Europe loves the high-speed rail. And so I actually, as a legislator, I actually voted for the bills to do the studies of the conceivability of doing this. I think you absolutely, though, have to identify a revenue stream to pay for it with. You cannot take the money out of the General Fund of California. I've said right along they're underestimating the cost. Today I was made right. Uh, they've dramatically increased what they say will be the cost. I think it's still low. I think it's going to be even more than that. And if you don't find a revenue stream, then the t cost of those tickets is going to be so high that nobody can ride it except the rich. So it's a good thing for air quality. It's a good thing for the environment. But it's not a good thing if you, it's like saying to your kids, you can't go to college. We can't help you with college because we have to buy a new car. That's not what my parents did. They had a 10-year-old car, and they didn't buy a new car. They, they put their money into their kids' education. So I don't want to take money out of education or anything else to build the, the high-speed rail. I want to identify a revenue stream to pay for it. All right, now, before I let you go, give us a, one peek behind stage. You've been at some of these forums now with your fellow candidates. Who is most different off-camera than on-camera? Who's, who's, who, you, who we have a quick laugh with before this? Well, I, you know, it's funny. We have had two debates where the six of us were present, one at CSBA in San Diego and the most recent one. I, um, you know, I, I do get along with everybody pretty much in my life. I've made it a point to try to get along with people. I think uh, the most real candidates are the Democrats. The others are, you know, uh, in, in, uh, I think denial about some of the things you have to do to in order to change California and make it uh, really uh, rumble along again and with the kind of glory that it once you had. So I want to say that I, I, again, get along with all the candidates. I do hope that they will become more substantive about what we're really going to do because too many of them are talking uh, the talk, but you know they're also taking money from big oil and a lot of big. Uh, Give me an example of, of that. Well, I mean, I, look, the the truth is that I'm not taking money from big oil, big pharma, or big tobacco. I really do believe that I have to be an independent voice, and that's one of the things that resonates with people. I do. I think it's one of the reasons none of the other Democrats are opposing fracking because they don't want to make the big oil people mad. And yet that's a sin in California to be fracking in this state at this time. And it's a combination of the seismic concerns and the pollution concerns. So putting dirty water into the ground of California is not a good plan. I'm sorry. And, and I do know people in L.A. that worry that some of these little earthquakes they're experiencing are partly because of the fracking behind Los Angeles. So I just think that you've got some people that, that are just trying to, you know, be nice. 
and but they're not really hitting the the core value issues that we must address if we're going to change California. And I've come out for tuition-free college. I've come out to build more campus. No, not that I know of. Some of them at community college, a couple of them have said they'd like to do that. But, you know, I went to UC Davis, and it was $82.50 a semester, and it included my health insurance. How, how would we pay for a free community college? Well, everything pays for itself in the long run, in the sense that when you educate people, they make more. I asked my dad, why doesn't it cost more to go to college? And he said, because you're going to get an education, you're going to make more money, and you're going to pay more taxes. You're going to pay the state back. And that's what happened. So you're, you wouldn't raise taxes to cover this or get some kind of other, like a sales tax or how, but, you know, for the upfront cost on, on government? As I said, we have to review the commercial industrial property tax. That's where I get the money. That's where I see us doing really good by education. And I think, frankly, if you put it on the ballot and you told the people we're going to dedicate this money mostly to education, K-12 and higher ed, they'd be in love. Delaney Easton, thanks for being on uh, It's All Political. You you know it's all political. We all Because everything is political, correct? Well, I'm afraid it is. <laughs> and uh, you know, But we do live in a society where we've done great things because it was political and because good-hearted people were at the helm. we got to make sure that happens. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Our executive producer is Fernando Diaz. Our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. And our producers are Peter Hartlaub, Brittany Schell, and Claire Varellis. It's all political's theme music. We have theme music. It's called Cattle Call by Randy Clark's Crow Song. The Chronicle's Josh Zucker, who is our podcast's musical director, is on bass. If you like what you heard, good news, there's more. Listen to Chronicle Podcasts and get bonus content at sfchronicle.com backslash podcasts. Or subscribe to iTunes, Stitcher, or other streaming services.